Hey, cinephiles, the following discussion includes discussions about sexuality, torture, and sexual assault comes up in a brief conversation between the guests and I. If that is something you cannot handle, then listener discretion is advised. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cinema Condition with the host, filmmaker, and creator of the Nerdcore Podcast Network, Raul Alejandro Mendoza. And today we are going to do another movie with another guest here. And I want to thank everybody for listening to the last two episodes. Uh, you guys have really, really enjoyed uh, Through a Glass Darkly with Aiden Burns, and you guys really, really enjoyed E.T. with Wesley Boudelier. So thank you so much for listening to those episodes. And today, I said that uh, I, I I forgot to um to announce this at the end of last week's episode, et, and I was gonna say that oh we were gonna start bringing people back, uh because I, last week was the last time I introduced a new guest to the to the show, and this week we're actually bringing back somebody else because the next week we will also be bringing back somebody else. So this is when you're gonna start seeing some reoccurring guests coming back and also seeing some new ones here and there, because we're kind of past the middle we're almost to the middle of the season so we're almost at number 15 and things are going to start looking like oh, okay well look look who's back and look who's back and this and that right but it's fine because it's still cinema condition season one and we're here to have a lot of fun and discuss the films that we're discussing and today i'm being being joined by my wonderful friend from episode three yes <laughs> you know who it is it is leah burns here with us and she, she and I are going to discuss 2016's The Handmaiden from Park Chan-wook. And hello, Leah. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Always excited to talk about lesbian revenge films. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yep, yep. I don't know what was happening on number three because you waved your magic fingers and magically you got us 184 views on YouTube. I don't. I guess people just like hearing me talk about castration. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, wish that would have been the same for the for the audio views. But like I said, it's okay, guys. Don't worry. Because this is these all these episodes are also available on the main feed, but they're going they're they're going up periodically. So by the time this is up, I hope the whole season is is uh what's it called done. I don't know when when this will be up by. So. Don't worry, guys. Uh, what's it called? If you don't catch these on the feed that it's on, it'll also be on anchor.fm slash nerdcore. But, Leah, I'm so happy to bring have you back because number, episode three was probably one of my favorites. And you're probably one of the, like I said on Twitter, you're like the smartest, one of the smartest people I know to discuss movies oh. with. So it's just so much fun bringing you back. And I can't wait to talk about this movie with you because this is one, this is one that I pre-chose for you because... I, I know you and I are about to have a really good conversation about this movie. Hell yeah. I'm excited to be here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, with me, there's some episodes, there's like, there's movies that I pre-choose to have on the season. And it's like, hmm, I wonder who I can find that would be a really good fit to talk about this movie with. Instead of going like, hey, choose your movie. Like, I pre-chose E.T. For, for Wesley because, well, that's his favorite movie of all time. Of course, he was going to choose that. And, of course, Leah wanted to do audition, so we gave her that choice. But now that she's back, she's decided to tackle another movie with me. And, Leah, I want to know, how, how's the quarantine going? Um, pretty good. So, I don't really leave my house that much anyway when there's not a <laughs> pandemic going on. So, there's not much lifestyle changes for me at the moment. <laughs> Just chilling, playing Animal Crossing, and watching lesbian movies. You've been playing a crap ton of le- uh, lesbian. You've been playing a crap, t- <laughs> a crap ton of Animal Crossing, as I can tell. Yeah, I have. I've put in like over 150 hours already. Jesus Christ! Have you not thought of streaming that content? Oh no, I'm thinking of streaming it. Um, at some point later this week, I just have to dye my hair again because it looks real nasty. <laughs> really? Uh, I'd be really interested to see how your hair looks. 
but uh, what's it called? Uh, I, either way, I'm glad you're here, and yeah, I'm just checking in because you know what's it called. Uh, we're in a different, uh, difficult times at the moment, and I uh, wanted to know how one of my friends was doing. But you know, this is pretty much you already know how it goes here, right? You know, it's not a review show. This is a show to discuss the themes of the films that we watch. And I don't know if you listened to uh, Aiden's episode because we went. That was pretty damn good. What we did on Aiden's episode. Yeah, I haven't listened to it yet, but I want to. I've just been like playing so much Animal Crossing that everything else has just been pushed to the side at the moment. It's fine. I, I understand. Uh, I mean, I don't have a Switch. Uh, I've been. I was hoping to get one with my uh, Trump bucks, but yeah, I'm not getting those. So you know, what's it called? That's that's fun. But what's it called? It's fine. It, you just you know, just check it out because uh, I think Aiden and I had a really really good conversation uh, on on uh, not on Animal Crossing, but on Through Glass Darkly. I don't know if you've watched that <laughs> film, but uh, I you know. have not. But I will listen to it anyway because I love you guys. Obviously, even though Aiden's a brat. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, you're not wrong. He is a brat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and do this because we have to introduce, you know, I don't have to introduce Leia, but I, I do have to introduce Park Chan-wak because uh, just like Takashi Miike, I have to introduce our filmmaker that we're talking about because we haven't talked about any of his films before. So <clears throat> we're going to go ahead and talk about the filmmaker known as Park Chan-wak. And he was born August 23rd in 1963, so he is 50. Three, 56 years old. I'm sorry about that. Um, don't want to make... In this case, I would like to make him younger than he is, but yeah, I made him a little bit younger. Um, and he was born in Seoul, South Korea. And what's it called? He is a director. He's a screenwriter. He's a producer. At a young age, he was really, really interested in, in philosophy. And he studied that philosophy at Seoul Gang University. But he had a very big disappointment with the analytic orientation of the department so he decided to go go away from that he would create his own cinema club which he called Sogang Film Community and you know he would publish a bunch of articles he wanted to become an art critic for some time and he would he would also become a film critic but you know it wasn't until he watched uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo when he decided that he wanted to become a filmmaker so, you know, he wrote more articles on film after and he would go on to make, uh, what's it called, uh, his, his start his career in filmmaking. And he started his career in 1992 with his film, The Moon is the Sun's Dream. He would go on to make, you know, two more films, uh, what's it called, direct another film called Trio. But it wasn't until 2000 when he, when he directed and he wrote, wrote and directed a joint security area where he would start to really, really get into the zeitgeist. And then, of course, the, the three films that he's mainly known for, his Vengeance trilogy in 2002, 2003, and 2005. Uh, those are Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, Old Boy, and Lady Vengeance. And, you know, he would also make other films like Thirst, Stoker, which was his first U.S. film. He was also a producer on Snowpiercer. And then he would make, twenty six. to me, what I think is my favorite film from him at the moment, because I've only watched The Handmaiden and... And old boy, but that is 2016's The Handmaiden. He made it for a, for what's it called? A, for for Amazon with Amazon Studios, and yeah, this film is is this is up my alley. I'm I'm a very big fan of the uh, you know the forbidden love trope. I'm also a big fan of uh, just uh, stories that kind of involve eroticism in some ways. And, and I don't mean it in a perverted way. I mean it more in like I'm really interested in the way that we depict sexuality in movies. It's one of the big things that I tend to tackle in my scripts. And you know because Brad said on one of the episodes of the Nerdcore Live show that he, he doesn't picture me working with Disney because a lot of my films are sexual in nature. So that was funny. Uh, so th these type of films are really up my alley and so will be next week's episode because that's going to be another film that's very much, that includes a lot of eroticism. And this film is an adaptation, it's a very loose adaptation of the novel Fingersmith by Welsh writer uh, Sarah Waters. But instead of it being in Victorian Europe, 
Victorian England. This is set in colonial in colonial in colonial Korea under the uh, the role of the the Japanese, and it stars a woman who is set to go and be a ma- a housemaid for uh for this you know royal figure who is supposed to be marrying her uncle, but what's it called is entered in this scam the the what's it called the, the housemaid seems to be entered in the scam with a count quote unquote count to go ahead and take the inheritance from uh, from from our main protagonist and that is the handmaid in, in Leia so you know I, I say this is not a review show but this is actually a movie you've never seen so I really do want to know what you thought about the movie I thought it was like incredible I am a sucker for any films that have like forbidden romance, especially when it's like women love women mm-hmm. rather than some sort of boring heterosexual thing that I've seen like a million times already. Mm-hmm. So I really liked just their the way their love was shown. It was it's really cute, honestly. And I was actually pretty excited to find out that it was based off of of that yeah, Victorian novel because I was like damn, that's actually pretty cool considering like how different the setting is. But even though the setting was like so different, it still kind of encompassed a lot of Victorian themes and characteristics like the plot with the madhouse and how Hidako like a woman of the home and just stays and does whatever her uncle tells her to in the clothing. There was like yeah. corsets and like petticoats and gloves and it had all that cool stuff going on with like the class structure. So I thought it was a really incredible movie. Yeah. So what's it called? Uh, I watched this on Amazon Prime. So I had the pleasure of seeing the x-ray on the sides. And I wanted to point out some of the x-rays because I really, really, I really think that this stuff is really important, especially as somebody who, you know, wants to make films really relaying around the subject of eroticism. And I wanted to, I wanted to highlight some of these. So what's it called? Um, uh, where are you? Right, it's got to be right here. Um, so, God, man, I just love when I'm not prepared. Right? <laughs> it happens. Um. So for the lesbian lovemaking scenes between the two female leads. All the crew members were asked to leave the set and only a female staff holding the boom microphone was present. The scenes were filmed with a remote-controlled camera. On the date of shooting, all visitors were not allowed to be near the shooting area. All male crew members had a day off on the shooting day. The bathroom set in Hideko's room was made into a resting area for the two actresses to relax between takes. The bed scenes were shot during the early stages of the production as Park thought it was stressful and burdensome for everyone. During pre-production, everything has has been choreographed and discussed between Park and the two actresses who were fully dressed. Uh, Taira Kim said she felt slightly insecure with performing the simulated sex scenes, but Min-Hee Kim reassured and energized her. Even before he had finished reading the novel, Fingersmith director Park Chan-wook had preemptively decided to make a film with a hat. Okay, we're not. Um, He also said that he he had a couple of consultants he went to on how to depict, you know, love between queer women, which is uh, something I do have to point out. You know, of course, this this is stuff that you should, you know, do as a filmmaker. You should always, uh, what's it called, uh, use a, what's it called, a closed set. And I think that, I think part taking it a little bit step further is like, oh, I'm not even going to be in the room. Uh, what's it called? I'm going to go and just use a, use a remote-controlled camera, which, by the way, that just sounds so badass, a remote-controlled camera. Uh, I think that that's, uh, I think that's, you know, it's such a really, uh, I think it's a, it's a, it's a really imperative thing that filmmakers should understand, especially when tackling subjects such as intimacy between, uh, what's it called, uh, women who love women, and it's, you know, having to make your actors feel safe and feel comfortable, and is sometimes having to use a closed set and telling your male counterparts who are in your your crew to take the day off, and the only person who needs to be in that room. Is the either the it's it's the director, the audio person, and the cinematographer, and what's it called? If you want to go a step further and be like, okay, no, the only one who needs to be in there is what's it called? The audio person who was a woman. 
And you've seen this happen before on uh, Olivia Wilde's Booksmart. She did the same thing as with the clothes set. She was in there. The monitors were turned off. The producers' monitors were turned off as well. It, uh, what's it called? It was only the actors, her audio person, and cinematographer in there. So I wanted to point that out. Yeah, that's really nice to hear that because... There was this one movie I really liked at first, um, Blue is the Warmest Color. Oh, yeah. It's another women love women film, and I really liked it when I first saw it. And then I found out that the hu- the director is like a huge creep, and like the very first scene he made the actresses shoot before they even got to know each other was like that seven-minute sex scene that's like right in the middle of the film. Yeah. And he made them do it like all day, and it just sounded awful, like the way he treated them. And I'm like, Jesus, that's terrible. Yeah, that I that first that at first time I watched that film I knew nothing about uh, uh Kitachi. I don't know how to say his last name because it's like I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, but I had no idea who how who how he was on set and everything. And I was like, God, I fucking love this movie. It's like one of my favorites. It's still I I, I leave that score what I gave it. I'm never gonna rewatch that movie in a platform where I can give it money or even. Mm-hmm try to rewatch it because I just can't stop and think about the way that he treated the actors. So after I want, after I found out, I was like, well, you know what? That's yep. I'm not rewatching that. Cause you know, that's just shitty. And I know he also made uh, what's it called? One of the actresses smoke actual cigarettes, even though she didn't want to smoke cigarettes. And it's, it's just, uh, there's, there's better ways to treat those who work with you. And I think that reading the way that Park Chan Wak kind of, what's it called, uh, kind of uh, uh, used this subject matter, I think it's a better way. I think that's a way that we need to, uh, what's it called, uh, we need to kind of change the industry to go towards, especially having onset, onset intimacy coordinators, which is something that I plan to use. And it's something that I'm, well, hopefully going to use because I am applying for an independent study next semester, next semester. And the film that I would like to shoot includes an intimate scene. And I will have, and I want to include in an intimacy coordinator to make sure that everything is portrayed accurately. And there's, you, you lose nothing by doing these things. And you also gain the respect and the trust of your, of your castmates and your crew. And it's just, it's, it's really important to do stuff like that, especially when you're tackling such subject matter. Yeah. I'm just skeptical coming into the film. Um, like the handmaiden at first, because I was like, okay, it's a guy and he's portraying like this lesbian love story. So I was like, I assuming the like sex scenes are going to be really over the top and from like a male point of view, like appealing to male fantasy. But for the most part, it felt like pretty good, pretty well done. Other than Mm. I know a lot of my lesbian friends always like, mock films that have any lesbian like scissoring scene yeah like, yeah we don't we don't really scissor <laughs> yeah yeah but and to be fair i kind of understand why this film would present the eroticism in a very male gazy way because the pornography that's being read in those in the in that room is very male gazy so of course exactly of course the way that she would have her first sexual encounter would be by the by the way by the by the way it was depicted in in the pornography she was reading to the people. Yeah, I know the author of Fingersmith was talking about it too because she was like afraid it was going to be weird too. But she was she said that it um it was very faithful to the idea that she set in her book that like women can appropriate like the male pornographic tradition mm-hmm. and like fix it and like use it to find their own way of exploring their desires. And I, yeah. I think the film, yeah, like nailed that on the head. Yeah. Cause I like, get the beginning is, that's kind of one of the first points I wanted to talk with you because the male, the, the male gaze is really in, in play the whole time. I don't think it is until the end where, where this film really kind of interprets its main theme to me, which is basically grabbing the male gaze and completely turning it on its head and having a film where, you know, it's like these women are actually taking control of the sexual desires that are being crafted and created in the pornography that they read by men and using it for their own self-pleasure when when you get to that ending with the bells. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. 
I I really liked that story, the sound of bells on a windless night. Mm-hmm. Like out of all of the pornographic readings that she had to read, like the group of um, collectors, that was the only one where I felt like she wasn't putting on such a huge performance when reading mm-hmm. it. Like it seemed like she was genuinely enjoying reading that story as opposed to what was it? There's, oh, pain is a garment. The one yeah. where like the Duchess is like whipping and like banging a dude while he's being strangled to death or the other one where um, it's talking about a girl's like Jade gate, AKA vagina for anyone who doesn't get that. Um, and how it's like hairless and white as snow and smooth as Jade. So like all these women are just like appealing to male fantasies of being yeah. like hairless, soft tight like they talk about someone's vagina being tight as a drum and they're either like compliant and like let the men do what they want or they're like the hot dominatrix who like Mm -hmm. can take care of a man but when it comes to like the sound of bells on a windless night it was actually just kind of a really cute story yeah and and nobody and nobody in that audience was really gravitating towards it they were like yeah that was a really good reading but she was the only one who was like, yeah, I really like this story. This isn't like, uh, she's wiping the sweat, but she's like, you know, I actually like this story. And like, I don't know. I, some of the dudes still looked pretty horny, like turned on from that story. But like, it wasn't as bad as the earlier ones where you could see that, like how flushed they were. Oh, yeah. And how like. How badly they wanted the to slip how badly they yeah. wanted to slip their hands in their pants so bad. Yeah. And how like the count had that little like vision of him being whipped by heated co and stuff. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that was just like the count's ideas based on yeah. the story. But yeah, yeah, I really actually loved those scenes just because of like how intense they were. I was not expecting that to come at all. Like, from mm-hmm. part one of the movie, she just seemed so innocent. And then just mm-hmm. by part two, I was like, holy shit, like, this is real. Yeah. <laughs> it's really fucked up. <laughs> and So I watched this one first. And then I watched Old Boy. And then I watched this one the second time, right? Park Chan Wak has a really interesting way that he creates his films. They're usually in a film, you'll have like one climax. This film has three fucking climaxes. Yeah. And I want to say Old Boy is the same way. Old Boy has like three twists in this his, in movie. And I just don't know if it's the way that, you know, Korea handles filmmaking differently because a lot of the films of Bong Joon-ho as well kind of have that style of there being multiple twists, but nobody does it like Park Chan-wak. And I wanted to bring that up because there's also parts in the film, you know, where what's it called? You talk about all these being very male fantasy like, and I, I, I will put a disclaimer on here because it just happens that every time that we, we have Leon, we just, we discuss the very morbid <laughs> and unusual aspects of the, of the human mind. Um, there's also seems to be a very big fantasy of taking women by force in the film. Mm-hmm. So, and it's not just with the uncle, it's with the count. Mm-hmm. have like <laughs> what he said specifically to her written down because it was so appalling i was like this is fucking disgusting and i yeah. want you dead <laughs> yeah and it's, yeah it's, it's interesting because a lot of the films that park makes are very female centric centric and he once again he before this when he was making when he did thirst he really really wanted to make a western with a male protagonist, with a male protagonist, he 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 had already made a lot of movies with with the female females being at the very top and being being very very prominent in the film, and he was like, well, I couldn't get it, I couldn't get in finance, and he was like, I'll, I'll go back and make another movie. What's it called? With another female protagonist at the head, and he makes this, and it's incredible because you know the women are very much taking away from the men, but it's really interesting. What's it called? They're not taking away from the men. They're really like kind of like, what's it called? Reclaiming the, you know, the desire back from them. And it's really interesting because, you know, you bring up stuff like just take, what's it called? Taking women by force and how it's seen as a very big pleasure. And it's like, God, man, this guy is like, these, these guys are, these men are disgusting. This super disgusting. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I think a lot of it too, like part of the way, part of why he like thinks that way is because like when he's like about to like rape Hideko in the end, he's just like, you'll be, you'll become a completely new woman. It won't hurt, you know, from those Mm -hmm. books, like the stories that he's consumed, like tell him that women like to be taken by force. Yeah. So I feel like there's still kind of an issue with that with like modern day pornography too, where men kind of learn the wrong things from porn sometimes. Like there mm-hmm. there are great there. But for the most part, most of it is, you know, like appeals to power fantasies for men and like how women should be perfect and hairless and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And I think a lot of people, when they consume that, they start to really believe it. Like they don't realize it's, it's a fictional, it's a fictional thing that's happening. They're like, ah, oh, women like it if I just choke them or hit them mm-hmm. without their consent. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah, and it's it's really interesting because you know it's it's like even in a film based in colonial Korea, you know, it's very prevalent and nowadays where you know like. A lot of, you know, pornography viewed on video sites, like, it's very much not exactly what goes down during real sex. And it's, it's, it's very fictionalized. It is, it's, it, pornography, the essence of pornography is a very oppressive, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, what's it called? An oppressive, uh, what's it called? What can I say? Um, category upon, upon, upon the woman, upon the female body. And it, it, it forces women to kind of be submissive. And it really reflects on this film when he's like, it's okay, you're going to like it and you'll become a new woman by the end being taken by force. And it's and even though, like, dude, like, she's the one who's taking you by force. If you, you flip the tables, she's giving you, what's it called, opium-infused wine so that way she can get out of here and, and like, basically, what's it called, and get out and go with the woman she actually loves. It's like she's mm-hmm. you're, like you're too you're too clouded by this false sense of what sexual desire should be because of those books. And, and instead of able to instead of being able to actually read the room and know that, yo, you're about to get sent to your own hell right now when you wake up. Yeah, like definitely the porn that's present in like the movie, like like it erases like any aspect really of womanly desire other than like the story of the sound of bells on a windless night like that was the only one that really talked about like oh like before you you know insert the bells and all this stuff like make sure you're turned on and like enjoying Mm -hmm. the moment and everything else this is all like men staring into hairless pussies or (laughs) you know or white as snow erotica yeah actually i have like a random fun fact for <laughs> talking about hairless vaginas yeah, 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 yeah. but um <laughs> so like since this is based on a victorian novel i just love just when you come on the me... show i just love when you <laughs> thank come you. on the show you, you bring up <laughs> the, you. the most <laughs> amazing facts just like last last time you were on here you talked about the other takashi Miike film where she was in a pool of blood shit and piss <laughs> <laughs> yeah well this is this is a real life fact, like yeah. not just from a movie, but since, you know, it was this story is based on a Victorian novel, it started getting me thinking because I took like a Victorian women's art class. So it made me think back on like mm-hmm. the art, the nude art I've seen from the Victorian period and stuff. And a lot of it, like, like the porn in this movie, like show women as kind of hairless. And so <laughs> there was one Victorian artist, Ruskin who actually, like, when he went to make love to his wife on their wedding night, he saw that she had pubic hair, and it, like, shocked him, and he was, like, so completely disgusted that he wouldn't consummate the marriage. (laughs) You gotta be kidding. Wow. (laughs) No, because she had pubic hair. And so it just, like, I don't know, really just makes you think about how truly, like, dumb and terrible men are when (laughs) they like get these ideas from media about how women should be and they're like oh and it's interesting because you get to and even then now we have this discuss with with hair 
when in the 60s, like all the pornography in the 60s had dudes with so much hair and women with hair all over their their uh, their their private areas. And you're like, what the hell? When did we have like we had like a shift in the 60s and then we decided to revert back and be like, oh, now hair is disgusting. Yeah, I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think like the sixties was just like a little more liberated because everyone was like really high, maybe. I don't know. But we're we're high now. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Is, is that hair or is that chocolate? I don't know what it is, right? <laughs> Either way, I'm going in. Um but but yeah, I, I mean what's it called? Um the eroticism is just is just handled oh, to me it's handled with a lot of care. And a lot of uh, appreciation for the craft that they're making here. Uh, the, the cinematography is incredible. The way that the camera just, uh, like I said, he's breaking so many rules. So I, I know you're not a film student, uh, Leah, but you did take a crap ton of cinema, cinema classes. He's breaking, he breaks the 180 rule so many times. And I, I'm yeah, not, I noticed that. <laughs> yeah, you know what the 180 rule is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's breaking that so many times, and it, and it's kind of like going into that God's point of view sometimes as well, where it's like up the camera's like really up in the air and, and like looking over the the houses and and the women kind of leaving the house so they can escape to to the you know the fake marriage of uh well the marriage of uh, of the count and Hideku and. It's 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 God. I just I just love how how it incorporates, and I love how this filmmaker just uses the camera here. It's like I said, there's that one instance when they're on the bathtub and where she looks down at her at her nipples, and I said, any other director would just gently move the camera down. And pa- and Park Chan Wak, he really kind of has the the camera moving like like if it would be an actual person looking. Like I don't want to look, and I want, but I really want to admire them. But I'm gonna like look down and look up, and then look back down, look back up. It's not just this male gazy, gentle way of like bringing the camera down. Like, holy crap, we're kind of getting to the nipples. Look at the nipples, and it's like, wow, look at that. No, it's 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 very jarring. It's very the the camera moves very differently. Yeah, I like that it does that because like Suki is so like shy, you know. Mm-hmm. So I felt like that like completely fit her character with how she would absolutely like try and sneak a peek of like Hideko's body. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. All right. So we have to go ahead and head into a commercial break. But when we come back, we'll go ahead and c- continue on with our discussion on Parchan Walks, The Handmaiden. But in the meantime, you guys have to listen to these commercials and we'll be back after the break. So we'll see you in a bit. Hey, I'm Rolando Mendoza, and this is Jabril Newton, and we are the hosts of High Flyer Radio. Radio. And finally, pro wrestling has come back to the Nerdcore podcast feed in the form of a show hosted by Jabril and I, and we talk about everything and anything in the pro wrestling world on Mondays at 3 p.m. Central Standard Time. Nothing's off limits. Whatever you guys want to talk about, it is from AEW to SmackDown, to Raw, to NXT, nothing's off the table. We can talk about it. We're going to talk all about it. And if you can get it a day early, you should go to the www.patreon.com slash the nerdcore and pledge to the tiers on there so you can get this show and a lot of shows days early before anybody else gets to hear it. But enough talking about it. We'll go ahead and see you there at the Square Circle. Don't tap out. Tune in. Tune in. Hey, it's Ashley from the Gamer Core. You may remember me from such episodes as Big Screen Mess, Mo Money Mo Platforms, and Brad Can Read. Tune in weekly as I blab with my co-hosts Raul the Nerdy Chicano and Brad the Random Germ about the latest news in gaming and gush over what we're playing at the moment. Oh yeah, and we got the deals too. Keep up with the latest deals in gaming and what's happening as I mediate Brad and Raul fighting like a married couple. Will Death Stranding ever come out? Will Cyberpunk 2077 live up to the hype? Is a next-gen worth a $500 console price tag? And has there ever been a movie adaptation of a video game that's been done right? It's all on the GamerCore podcast, everywhere where podcasts are. Hey everyone, my name is Raul Dinari Chicano, and I am the host of The Impert Files. The Impert Files is an interview show brought to you every Thursday on the NerdCore podcast feed. And... I interview people such as filmmakers, content creators on YouTube, and podcasters like Colton Geschwander. And if you want to listen to that early, a whole week early, all you got to do is go to the Patreon and pledge to the $1 tier. 
And if you want to listen to it with the general public, then go to Nerdcore Podcast Feed on anchor.fm slash the Nerdcore. And the case is closed, but it's not classified. See you guys there. Hey guys, this is Brad, aka Young Yoda. Raul said I had to make an ad, so that's what I'm doing. Um, it's supposed to be for Unstructured, but as you guys know, you can freaking catch me everywhere when it comes to this podcast feed. You can find me on the Nerd Cores, on Gamer Cores, on Nerdy Chicanos sometimes when I get lost. Uh, I mean, but for this particular one, I want you guys to go check out Unstructured. The role gave me free reign to do whatever I want to do. I don't know what he was thinking. So go hear me talk about LeBron James and Taco Tuesday, vaping, uh, so many other freaking weird topics that uh, chimichangas, that's a good one. Uh, shout out to Deadpool. And yeah, I, I guess this is the end of the ad. So if you guys want to find me, you can find me all over the place on this uh, podcast feed. Anyways, thank you guys for listening. I love you all. And nerd up. Hello, 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 guys and gals, and you're listening to The Ladies of Nerdcore. I am your host, Daniela Nunez, and along with my amazing co-host, Ashley Garcia, we discuss many things like social impact, pop culture, political realms, and any controversy surrounding the nerdverse. Tune in and listen to us bi-weekly on the Nerdcore podcast feed, and we will love to chat and hear your thoughts on our wonderful show. And thank you again for listening to The Ladies of Nerdcore. What's up, everybody? It is me, Raul, and I'm one of the hosts of the Nerdy Chicano Show. The Nerdy Chicano Show is a comedic show brought to you by Luis and myself, and it comes to you all every Sunday on the Nerdcore podcast feed. You can catch it a day early by becoming a Patreon and supporting us at the $1 tier. And I don't really know how to explain this show other than it's fun, we get to talk about whatever we want, and it helps you move on in the week. So if you want to catch on, if you want to catch the the Nerdy Chicano Show every Sunday at 8 a.m. All you got to do is go to anchor.fm slash the nerdcore, and we'll see you there, baby. Everyone, I'm Raul. And I'm Brad. And we're the hosts of the Nerdcore Podcast, the podcast that talks that nerd. Not on this ad, right? And we come to you every Monday, Tuesday, and Saturday. On the Mondays, we talk the news. That's the box office, the news of the week. And your trailer talk, if there is any. And on Tuesday, we have our theme review. And on Saturday, you have a Saturday morning review, usually movies that have come out in the week or anything we want to talk about. Right, Brett? Exactly. Whatever we want to talk about, this is our show. If you don't like it, then you don't have to listen. We're the flagship show of the Nerdcore podcast feed, and we can be found everywhere you can listen to podcasts like Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, so if you want to talk that nerd stuff with us every Monday, Tuesday, and Saturday, make sure you tune in. And Brad? Young Yoda out. All right, we're back here with The Cinema Condition, and we're talking with Leah Burns about Park Chan Walks, The Handmaiden. And we are back for our discussion because you guys listen to all those wonderful commercials, and I want to thank everybody who made all those wonderful commercials. And just know that those commercials are very, very, very important because you should go and listen to all the rest of the shows on the Nerdcore podcast feed at anchor.fm slash the Nerdcore. And you should also leave a review on our Apple podcast page for not just this podcast, but the podcast on the Nerdcore. That's what's going to help people find these episodes a lot better is by going and leaving a review on the Nerdcore and the Cinema Condition podcast feeds. So please go ahead and do that because it really, really does help us out here. And we're back here with Leah. And Leah, what's it called? Uh, we were we wanted to bring up something. It's uh, one, one. It's I wanted to bring up something. What's the last one? Uh, one of the last like corner pornographic um, uh, uh, discussions because what's it called? You you introduced. Well, I wasn't really introduced to the theory by you. I was really introduced to it by my uh, world film and film theory class when we. Tra- where we tackle the psychoanalytic film theory. And he, my professor really brought up, what's it called, castration anxiety and the whole idea of taking something away that is, uh, that, that taking something away that is always kind of being threatened, right? You know, you're like, oh, don't behave bad or I'm going to cut it off. And what's it called? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that was very present in our film that we talked about on episode three, Takashi Mika's edition, right? Very, very present. But it's also present kind of towards the end of this one. But it's also present in a lot of other parts of the film. And I want to talk about it. So we're going to finally have our discussion on here on castration anxiety. But because how could how, it's a Leia episode episode? How, how could I not bring up castration anxiety? Right. It's, it's just everywhere. It's your brand. I'll find it in any film. <laughs> it's, 
It's it's in there. It's in it's in every one of these films. Like hell, even Ratatouille, right? You know, Ratatouille has. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. So what's it called? Towards the so at the, the end of the film, what's it called? The count has gone has been taken to back to the uncle because what's it called? He obviously disobeyed orders, and what's it called? He ties him up in his basement where he has an octopus. Uh, in there too, yeah. he has basically all his uh, his tools to where he killed Sudeku's uh, Hideku's uh, aunt, and he threatens to hurt Hideku if she, what's it called, uh, goes against her plans, his plans, and just overall is bad to her and bad to him. And he takes the count there, and he proceeds to cut his fingers off. Uh, just, just straight up going for the fingers, right? And he puts a drill through the other hand, but once the count really like what's it called? Uh, turns the tables in a sense because he really can't turn them since he's being, you know, tied up. Uh, he smokes opium. What's it called? Not opium. Mercury, mercury cigarettes, which kill both the count and the uncle. And he says a line that really stands out to me every time I watch the film, and it stood out to you during your first watch of the film. At least I st- I die with my cock intact, intact, and it's like yes. Mm-hmm. So take it away, Leah. I, um, I think it's also important to like mention. So like yeah, there's the huge octopus in the room, but the walls of the basement are lined with like preserved jars of genitals that yeah. he's obviously been cutting out of people and collecting. Like he's got like whole vaginas and like penises and jars and i feel like cutting out a vagina is probably actually really hard so like yeah i don't know kudos on that i guess but um like so the the threat is very real just even when he wakes up immediately and sees all that on the wall he's like well probably get my dick cut off today yep and the fingers you know just kind of like leading up to it but funny that his final words were like as like uncle collapses and like the scissors fall out of his hands where he's like at least I die with my cock intact and I'm like you fucking asshole (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's other parts where he really does put the the emphasis on his cock you know where where he supposedly gets mad at at, at Saki Suki I'm sorry Uh, (laughs) yeah that one was that was bad oh wow Uh, he gets mad at her and he puts her, her hand on his on his on his dick, and he's like, "Feel how hard it is." And it's like, you know. Then she says, "Like, oh, and don't ever put my hand on a little tiny joke of, of a cock like that." And there, there's this very big uh, idea of like, you know, these men and the, the men, especially the count in this film, being like, you know, like crap, like I might get my dick cut off, but there's also when the readings are being done. Those men have this fear of grabbing their dick while they're there as well. Like, like you see it, like they they so badly want to relieve themselves of the sexual, you know, the sexual pleasure that they're feeling, but they can't uh, because, well, not because they're just out in public in a sense as well. But like, you know, you know how this this guy rolls. The uncle is like, you know, cross him, you'll cut your dick off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't know what to think of uncle at first. Like when everyone was first like talking about him, you know, they're just like, Oh, he just really likes books. And I'm like, Oh, how bad can he be? <laughs> and then I see the dude. <laughs> I'm like, well, okay. First of all, he's got like this black ass tongue and his eyebrows are a mess. And I'm just like, there's something off about him. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I was right. Like, what the fuck? Who collects genitals in their basement? Collecting pornographic books is something, but genitals yeah. in your basement? Like, yeah, I feel like collecting dirty books and drawings, it's, it's fine. Like, whatever. I'm sure I have some naughty shit hidden somewhere in my house, but I don't have jars of genitals. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, dude, which is why I love that scene so much when when uh, Hideku and, her, and, and uh, Suki kind of go and, and destroy the, the library and they mm-hmm. rip out the pages and it's like 
I think that's really where that shift, where I'm telling you, that's where that shift of the women reclaiming the power really comes in. And it's because Hideko's like, wow, she's actually doing this. Like, I've been wanting to do this for all my life, and now this she's finally doing it. And she's like, oh, it takes a time for, it takes a bit for her to get for to get involved, and then she does it, and it's like, wow, like it, it's that that to me was the second hottest scene in the uh, in the movie. Uh, yeah, I thought that scene was really cute, just because yeah. like Hideko's obviously still scared, even though yeah. she's running away from home, but she's still terrified of that basement, yeah. and like. That's why she has the opium in the first place to like kill herself mm-hmm. if he ever drags her down there. But then when Suki just goes crazy and starts destroying it, I was like, damn, that's romantic as hell. Yeah, that was that was what's it called? That was one of the I love that scene. It's beautiful. She's, she's like kind of easing her way into it. It's, it's just like that first scene in the bathtub. Like I said, that's that's probably one of the most sensual and beautiful scenes as well. And where she's just kind of softening the tooth and it's like just kind of like looking at her and like, wow, like God, it's just amazing. But when they destroy that library, I'm like, God, that's fucking amazing. Like, look at these two powerful women just absolutely destroying, you know, the very thing that holds them to that house. You know, mm-hmm. it's 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 amazing. And uh, and I really, really, what's it called? I, I really, really enjoyed that scene a lot. And, and the castration anxiety is very, very prominent <laughs> within the count. Uh, so yeah. much, so much that what's it called? And he wakes up with his pants on, pants down. He's like, you know, we, can you go get those for me? And it's like, yeah, I'm about to go, I'm about to go get killed. Like, yeah, yeah. Well. at least I still have my dick, right? Yeah, I feel like the count thinks all of his power is in his manhood because you know cisgender men and love their penises. Like they think that's what makes them hot shit, but like. It doesn't. <laughs> I <No>. don't know. <laughs> you know, it's. I don't know. I don't know. There's just this odd obsession with our members, apparently. But I uh, know it's because they're like, "This is what makes me a man," and it's like, it really does not. Like, no. <laughs> you're just a piece of shit with a non-impressive dick. Like, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah, I, I just love that she was like, you know, that's a tiny joke for a cock, bro. Like, like I know. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, and I, I know you had another thing you wanted to bring up, Leah. Leah. What? Uh, moving on to the next theme, you wanted to bring up the whole Japanese and, and, and Korean, and the Korea, the Korean, uh, what's it called, uh, relationships between in the film. Yeah. So did you want to start or You me? go ahead and go. You go ahead and go. Okay. Well, I just like wrote down like a little little historical paragraph, which I basically took from the History Channel, but whatever. So Aliens. <laughs> from 1910 to 1945, the Empire of Japan ruled over Korea. The Empire of Japan silenced Korean culture by forbidding schools to speak Korean. They burned over 200,000 Korean historical documents, and they ordered at one point that films were made to films were supposed to be made in Japanese. Um, And Japan basically took over the whole land. They had like Japanese families settle down in Korea, kind of like how we have Hideko and like her aunt have obviously settled down there. They tore down a bunch of historic buildings and they planted a bunch of non-native like species in order to make the landscape have a more like Japanese aesthetic. Many Korean people were made to work in Japan, and then thousands of women had to work as prostitutes for military brothels. Korean people were forced to adopt Japanese religious practices like Shintoism. And near the end of occupation in 1939, that's when Korean families were allowed to choose Japanese surnames. And I I say allowed like that because basically if they didn't choose a Japanese surname, then they wouldn't be recognized by the government and they wouldn't be able to get rations or like mail. Mm -hmm. Um, But there was like a lot of protests against like the Japanese rule from the Korean people too, which is like really great because they didn't just, they didn't just sit there and take it for like those 30 odd years that they're under control. But it's really interesting that in the movie, like uncle is a Korean man but he basically just sold out his country because he wanted to be rich and he wanted to become Japanese. Like he thought Japan was beautiful. Like he said that Korea is soft, slow, dull and hopeless, but Mm -hmm. Japan's beautiful. 
And the man very much, what's it called, uh, admires the pornographic Japanese art, like uh, the Dream of the Fisherman's mm-hmm. Wife that's in there. And there's another one, too, uh, that gets mentioned in there. But, yeah, you see you see the full picture of the, the you know, the what's it called, uh, the Dream of the Fisherman's Wife. And I believe you said you have the translation of it, too, right? Uh, yeah, but I'm not going to read all of it because it's, like, <laughs> kind of... <laughs> Really sexual, obviously. Okay, yeah. But, well, that's only um, for OnlyFans.com, the, sli- the cinema condition, right? <laughs> yeah, but essentially, like, so all the writing, like, in the background of the piece of art, you know, for people who haven't seen Dream of the Fisherman's Wife, it's this lady, a pearl diver, who's kind of laid out on the beach, and she's got an octopus performing kind of lingus and another one making out with her, touching her nipple. But uh, anyway, <laughs> the translation is mainly um, like the octopuses kind of like talking about they're saying like they're going to abduct her, capture her because she has a good pussy. <laughs> <laughs> and like at first, like the diver's not really into it, but gets more into it. But like, um, I don't know. It's definitely, it's not like super rapey, but like a little bit, you know, because mm-hmm. the uh, octopus are like, oh, and when she loses like consci- consciousness, like we'll do this all over again. And I'm like, oh, oh God. <laughs> okay. God. Yeah, it's like really <laughs> fucked up. But yeah. it's interesting that that's the kind of art that this guy is collecting. And this is what he's like, yes, Japan is so beautiful. And it's like, yeah, you know, non-consensual octopus porn. That's what's beautiful yeah. to you. Yeah, it just <laughs> goes to, to what's it called, reiterate that this guy's a piece of shit. But there's also seems to be like a very self-hate for, you know, the Korean identity in the movie as well. And I wanted to bring that up because the count very much yeah. is like, like, well, you know, it's fine. I'd rather speak Japanese in a way. And he, you know, he disguises himself as being Japanese. And there seems to be this self kind of self-loathing of the Korean identity, and especially well, looking at the time, you know, at the the colonial rule. It's like what happens when when your identity is kind of stolen from you, and you're kind of told to, uh, you know, keep it, uh, keep it, uh, keep it hidden, be made to uh, feel like it is not part of you. You kind of have to adopt either the colonizer's uh, identity, or you have to either basically let's go live as one of the oddballs out there who is actually, you know, wants to, wants to be part of their identity. Yeah. And I think that like his self-hatred is like a really just good reflection of how Japan tried to completely annihilate like the culture. And so Mm -hmm. it was like to a point too, where like, they'll think like Korea wouldn't be where it is if it hadn't have been for the influence that Japan had. Like, I know there was some controversial thing. I don't remember who said it, but someone was saying, like, said basically that. They're like, oh, Korea wouldn't be as great as it is if it weren't for Japan in, like, reference to some sort of Olympic event. And people got really enraged at that because yeah. it's awful, obviously. But, yeah, that's what mm-hmm. Japan kind of did to them. And then you see that as Suki and um and what's it called uh, and Hideku really feel very comfortable when they speak what's it called Korean with each other, and you know she she starts off uh, Suki st- kind of starts off as uh talking what's it called Japanese or she's like she refuses to speak Japanese to back Hideku really refuses to speak Japanese back, and she's like you know like just speak Korean with me, and they seem to feel comfortable while you have characters like you know Uncle and the Count that really kind of want to just just what's it called a uh, disregard the Korean identity and really become more, more fully fledged into the Japanese identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like for the most part, I think the count was actually pretty proud of his Korean like heritage, but he just, you know, took on the guise of a Japanese noble in order to infiltrate the household better. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah how, how else are you gonna get that uh, that nice inheritance, right? We never even go like. <laughs> I I still find it hilarious. He just wanted to split it fifty yen with everybody, and she was like, "Nope, I'm getting a hundred extra, hundred thousand extra. <laughs> I ain't taking just fifty thousand. 
And Hell the jewelry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's doing most of the work, so. <laughs> exactly. And that leads great, wonderfully into our last final topic, and which is the probably the, the, what's it called, the most important topic of this film. But I know you wanted to bring up some stuff of the architecture, so I'll let you get into that before we talk about the class warfare. Okay. So um, I just thought initially it was really interesting when Suki's being shown around the house, well, the manor for the first time. And um, I can't remember that lady's name. I think it's Sasaki. Sasaki, um, yeah. Okay, cool. She's explaining how the property is made up of three different buildings. It has the Western style wing, which is made by an English architect. And then it has a Japanese wing from the main house. And um, then there's the annex, which uncle turned into a library to hold all his pornography. Um, but it was really cool that, well, not, I don't know. It was interesting that she was like, not even in Japan is there a building combining two styles. It reflects master's admiration for Japan and England. And mm. all the England talk got me thinking again about Victorian literature and Gothic literature too, because mm-hmm. it's like the mansion is part Gothic, part Japanese. And so in a lot of Gothic literature, like Castle of Otranto, or even thinking of like Edgar Allan Poe's like Fall of the House of Usher, like the building in itself, like is kind of a character as well, you know, like it has all these hidden aspects to it. They like, it reflects everything that's going on in the film and you have all these public or like private spaces, like the secret basement. It's like this evil, terrible place that like basically just shows like uncle's true character. And I don't know. I just thought it was really cool. Yeah. I like architecture. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. And yeah. And I like how in like the Japanese rooms too, with like the sliding doors, you can see if people are like snooping on you or like listening in on your secrets through like the partition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Comes in uh, handy when that comes in handy with that maid. You know, she's just sitting yeah. there like, oh, no. uh, by the way, forever. Mm, forever. By the way, there apparently is an extended cut, which I cannot watch because it is only available to the regions that are not in North America. So let's go. Oh. Really, there's no point in buying that Blu-ray then. Uh, but there's an extended cut where in that scene, he the count actually does a handstand. And I was like, why? Why? <laughs> so uh, That's interesting. It's very interesting. <laughs> but I, I really want to watch the extended version of this film because apparently it's three hours and three minutes. It has like 25 minutes of extra footage. And I would really like to see the, the extended version of this. But yeah, it's like he does a handstand in there while the lady... And the lady stays there for a, a lot longer, by the way, in, that, in the extended version. So yeah, even though it did I feel like... I love that. I love that, which it, which if it already feels like she's in there for a while, too, which is like what, like how, why, why yeah. are you still there, man? Like just get, just leave. Uh, but I love anything that has really weird, long, awkward pauses like that. Like, yeah, I could have sat there watching her waiting for like five minutes, probably. And that's probably just yeah. because I love David Lynch so much, and he does just weird ass shit like that. <laughs> oh yeah, and God, I I love Lynch too, and. Still hoping for somebody to to come at me and say they want to do Mulholland Drive because that's one of my favorite movies of all time. So, nice. um, yeah. Uh, but let's go ahead and go into our final theme here and let's go ahead and uh, get to it because, what's it called, we're nearing the end. And as always, I what's it called, I don't want to keep you as much time and I also have to start a live stream in like 30 minutes. <laughs> so <laughs> we have to get to it already. So, yeah. I wa- so what's it called... It, it is absolutely no surprise that uh, Suki is a poor, a poor, uh, what's it called, a poor woman. You know, of course, what's it called, the Count is is poor as well, but he's trying to disguise himself as a rich man. And he kind of takes Suki and wants to manipulate her. And uh, w- when you find out about the twist that, you know, that Suki, uh, what's it called, that the Count and, and Hideko have always been in on it, what's it called, it's, it's, it's no surprise that the lower class man wants to, what's it called, what's it called wants to kind of pin the other lower class woman against him and so that way he can find a way to go on top and you basically take over the higher class once again this is one of the themes that's also very prevalent in parasite from bong joon ho which was an incredible film uh academy award winning film 
And I would want to talk about that film, especially with somebody else. And I'm waiting for somebody to claim that one as well. But I, I wanted to I wanted to get your thoughts on the whole idea of class in here, in this film. Yeah, um, I thought it was really interesting and also, like, you know, it's based on a Victorian novel. And it felt very Victorian in that sense with the class social structure of having a pickpocket come to essentially rob an heiress of her fortune. But... Yeah. Of course, pickpocket and heiress fall in love, which is cute. I like when that happens. Yeah. But yeah, in the beginning, I was definitely rooting for them before I ever met Hideko. I'm like, yeah, take her money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was the same way. I was like, God, I hope this movie just ends with her taking the money. It's like, and then you kind of feel like what she's starting does she's starting to feel for her, and you're starting to see like, oh crap, maybe yeah, maybe maybe the rich do decide to have a really do deserve to have a happy ending in this what's it called uh, in this film, but yeah, what's what what what's it called? It's just that whole uh, whole idea of like her being a pickpocket, her knowing how to tell a fake sapphire from a real sapphire, the the guy coming in and being like trying to undersell her when she's like, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna I want to get an extra one hundred thousand. Yen, and I want to make sure I get the jewelries and stuff. Her trying on the clothes of of, of the rich woman and being fe feeling very different in it. It, it, it it's really interesting they did, how they depict the whole you know fish coming out of the big pond, right, and going into this yeah. vastly different world that she does not know. Uh, I'm trying to hold on. I have like a quote that I thought was super cute. I have to find it, but it's like. Um, when um, Suki is like dressing up Hidako and Hidako is dressing her up. Okay, yeah. so it's like, ladies truly are the dolls of maids. All these buttons are for my amusement. If I undo the buttons and pull the cords, then the sweet things within, those sweet and soft things, if I were still a pickpocket, I'd slip my hand inside. And I thought that was just like really yeah. cute. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just incredible writing. I, 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 that's one of my favorite lines of the film too. And I, I just, and, and it's just being, it's being repeated while she's like softly taking off those buttons. And I, I think it's also funny that it comes right after when uh, Hideko kind of tries to, uh, what's it called, uh, uh, tie the corset, and he's like, oh, like no, no. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just, I thought Hideko felt just like a really nice person. Like usually when people are rich like that, they tend to be a little spoiled and kind of awful. And for the most part, when I see movies with like an heiress, like bossing her maid around, it's like pretty cruel, but Hidiko was just like really chill. Like yeah, <laughs> letting her try on her dresses and stuff. And I, yeah. I thought that was really sweet. She slapped the other ones when they stole the shoe, but you know, she, what's it called? You, you have to send a message somehow, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's fine. You know, slap the other poor maids, but, you know, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, but, but, yeah, I, I, I love that whole part where she's kind of trying on the dresses because it's like, oh, like, this is the life I'm going to have once I finish this mission while I get that money. I, I'm going to be able to be like Hideku. You know, I may not have her, but, you know, I'll, I'll be like her. Mm -hmm. And I feel like Hideko at that part, like, She's realizing she's falling in love with Suki because she tells Suki that she sees her face when she goes to sleep at night. And so I think, like, when Hideko's dressing up Suki, she's like, oh, like, this could be my potential partner in life, you know? Yeah. And, and then you get those wonderful scenes where she's kind of being the voyeur as well. When she's, like, sp when she's like looking through the crack in the door, when, when she gets out of the bed and she puts on her gown, when, when, she's, when, she, when her breasts are kind of exposed and you're like... Like, kind of like the voyeur is kind of becoming the voyeur now. And, and it's really, really interesting. Mm -hmm, yeah. Yeah. And one of my favorite um, quotes, too, is like when Suki was like destroying all the books and stuff. And Hideko was just kind of watching her in amazement. And she's just like the daughter of a legendary thief who sewed winter coats out of stolen purses. Herself a thief, pickpocket, swindler. The savior who came to tear my life apart. My Tamako, my Suki. And I was like, oh, so yeah. cute. Yep. So, I, God, I, I just, I, like I tell you, I, I love this movie. I, it's what I, I think to me it's one of the best of the decade. And I think that it was heavily snubbed for Academy Awards because this, this film is, is masterful. It's incredible. I, 
I think that it's it's one it's probably one of the one of the best Korean films I've ever seen. It's also probably the thing that makes me realize that Jesus Christ, Korean film Korean cinema is amazing, and they can do incredible things over there. And I I really do recommend everybody go watch this film. Everybody go watch more of Park Chan Wook's work because he's an incredible filmmaker. And this film is just the the icing on the cake to be honest because. There, there's more to him that's just incredible in it, and I know that we can't really talk about every single thing about Park Chan Wook, but hopefully somebody will come in here and want to do Old Boy or one of the other films from him because I really, 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 really want to keep talking about this man because he he's an incredible filmmaker, and you know the performances were amazing as well, and the cinematography was incredible, and what's it called? That was that was our discussion on uh on Park Chan Wook's Handmaiden. Unless we have anything else to be said. Nope, just you know, watch lesbian movies. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad you came back, Leah, because you know you're you're one of the best, and I and I love having you on. And I know we have two more movies to do for you. And what's it called? That those are Hereditary and Midsummer, Midsummer. And I can't wait to bring you on for those. But I'm glad that you chose this one. You're like, ah, let me watch something that I haven't watched before. And yeah, I've already seen Hereditary like five times. I haven't rewatched Midsommar yet, though. But I was like, you know what? I had just watched Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And I was like, let's get some more lesbian cinema up in here. <laughs> Dude, and I'm sorry. It just com- completely. They, they, well, I'm not sorry. Alex took that one. It's It was going to happen. She, she, she was going to take. She, she, you should have just, you should have hit me up earlier in that day. To claim it, but somebody already grabbed it. I mean, that's fine. I enjoyed it just on my own, just fine. <laughs> yep, yep. And if you haven't watched Parasite, that's on Hulu as well, along with other three films. Yeah, I are. just saw that they just added it on Hulu, so I'm going to give that a watch sometime this week, yep. probably. There's three other films on there by Bang Joon-ho that I recommend everybody else watch, too. So that 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 go go and stream that go and uh, stream a portrait of lady on fire and go watch handmade the handmaiden if you have amazon prime but that is it leo can you tell the people where they can find you oh yeah so i'm on twitter and uh tom no not tumblr twitter <laughs> instagram and now twitch even though i haven't started streaming yet but it's at lumpy space bitch but the I and bitch is a one. Nice. So, nice. Hit me up. <laughs> and you can listen to Leah on all the other episodes that she's on on the show whenever she wants to come on. But we'll wait for her to come back for two more movies. And you can always find me at The Nerdy Chicano on Instagram and Twitter. And I host the Nerdcore podcast and the Nerdcore live show on the Nerdcore podcast feed at anchor.fm slash nerdcore. If you want to get this episode a day days early, I think it's like a whole week. Guys, go check it out at patreon.com slash nerdcore. And as always, make sure you check out the nerdcore.com for my written reviews and stuff like that. I want to thank my guest for coming on. She is incredible. And I can't wait for you guys to listen to next week's episode when I bring back Alex Almeida to discuss Gaspar Noé's 2015 film, Love, one of my favorite films of all time. So this has been, this has been the, the cinema condition. And as always, I don't have an outro. So I just ask you guys to go stream. The Handmaiden and Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We'll see you in the next one, guys.